Hey guys, Alex Lokes here for Classic Camera Revival, and today we are going to be talking about cameras that might not be that interesting. Think of them more like a Chrysler Reliant, maybe a LeBaron, LeBaron convertible in some case. Yes, we are talking about the K cars of cameras, those cameras that aren't pretty, aren't that exciting, but they just get the job done. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Hey guys, alright, so we all like flashy cameras, we have Hasselblad. Talking about me, man? <laughs> Little bit, <laughs> but then again, I mean like, we have like pro-level Nikons, Canons, etc, etc, but sometimes you just want a camera that isn't too flashy just gets the job done so i've labeled these k car cameras i came up with the um with the uh what's the word <laughs> i came up with the um, analogy analogy mm -hmm. thank you um back when i reviewed the minolta maxim 5000 which basically looks like a 1980s vcr took amazing images it just wasn't too exciting to work with so we decided that these cameras oftentimes just sort of get swept aside not really talked about much so we are going to be talking about them today and to start us off is a guest host brian who most of you know from act um, being quite active on the negative positives board and on the toronto film shooters board so and sprouting photographer let's not absolutely that. i'm that guy at like five o'clock in the morning that's posting in the group saying hey i just scanned like three rolls <laughs> three rolls of images that i developed last night and thankfully brian's no stranger to podcasting so yeah, we're go. expecting to be showed up today so <laughs> so yeah so the camera that i brought to talk about is actually um a half frame camera and uh Alex, you were saying that we haven't really, or you guys haven't really discussed half-frame cameras Not at too all. much on, on CCR yet, so kind of exciting. And this is actually sort of a, a newer-ish discovery for me, and so I've been shooting a lot with this. This is the Olympus Pen EES-2. So for anyone that's not, I guess, familiar with half-frame cameras, basically the idea is that in a typical frame in a 35-millimeter camera, um, you know, you have your image. A half-frame image is basically a vertical half of that. So it kind of cuts a typical 35 millimeter frame in half um, vertically, which is actually interesting because the viewfinder, if you look at the camera normally, is actually a vertical viewfinder. So it Excellent. sort of actually forces you to shoot a little bit differently, which is actually good for me because I shoot 90% horizontal images. Okay. So using this camera has actually forced me to almost shoot um, exclusively in portrait orientation. Now, the reason that I have really fallen in love with this camera, this is a $100 camera. This is not anything fancy. It's not anything crazy. Um, there's all kinds of uh, Olympus pens. There's the EE. There's the EE2, the EE3. Uh, Canon has the Canon Demi. These are all, you know, $100 cameras, sub $100 cameras, um, these half-frame guys. And what I like about it is, well, first of all, you get double the amount of images on a roll of film. So Which is why I don't like half-frame yeah, cameras. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the thing that um, I'm really enjoying about it is that it is forcing me to photograph very, very differently. I, I mentioned that it forces me to photograph vertically because it's a vertical viewfinder. But beyond that, one of the things that I find attractive is um, thinking in terms of pairs. So I'm now actually making every single image that I make with this camera 
as if it's going to be a diptych. So I'm doing two side awesome. by side. Yeah. No, that's great. So it's fun, and then I scan it basically as a typical 35 millimeter um, image, and then I've just got two images side by side. So nice. Um, it's great. It's fun. It's a zone focused camera, so it is as point and shoot as you can get. Uh, you choose mm-hmm. one of four zones. It's got an auto aperture. It only has two shutter speeds, which is interesting. Okay. One fortieth of a second and one two hundredth of a second. So beyond uh, choosing one of four zones, which is basically three feet, uh, five feet, ten feet, or infinity, you choose that, point and click, and you're good to go. So um, taking a look at it, it actually looks a lot like an Olympus Trip 35, yes. um, complete with a selenium meter around the lens, the zone focus, the two, um, the two shutter speeds. It's, it's a half-frame um, Trip 35 almost. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same thing as the Trip 35, just half frame so and another interesting thing is that that half frame is historically the original frame size for 35 millimeter when it was being only used for motion picture film so except it was in the landscape format instead of portrait so yeah so it's fun it's again like you know no frills it's very simple no rangefinder patch nothing like that but you point and shoot and it just forces you to, to see differently. And, nice. um, you know, I think that's, that's the wonder of, uh, experimenting with all these, all these old cameras is it kind of get a totally different shooting experience each time. <laughs> awesome. Bill next up with, um, a camera that we are most familiar with around the table. We've done a whole episode on the, uh, on them. So take it away. Yeah. Thanks Alex. Um, the Nicromat FTN, um, it is like one solid workhorse of a camera. It was um, Nikon when it came out with the Nikon F back in 1959. It was the equivalent of dropping the Nikon D810 on the market today. Granted, they were also silly expensive, and Nikon also had a whole boatload of lenses out with it. And they had a they say, okay, we needed a prosumer camera that we can sell at a much more affordable price. They partnered with Mamiya, I think, for a little while with the Nicorex. It was a bit of a, well, mixed bag. So Nikon took the whole design and production in-house, and they came out with the Nicromat. And they had a couple different variants of the Nicromat. Uh, the one I'm talking about is the FTN, which was introduced in 1967. It had probably an eight-year production run, and they discontinued it in 1975. It has got a meter sensitivity, like a film sensitivity from, like, uh, just looking here on here it's like from ASA 17 no 12 up to 1600 which will get you through most of it uh, and it, and shutter speeds from bulb to you know uh, like 1000 1000th yeah 1000th of a second it's sad when you have to go look at your own cameras because it's like uh, you're just so used to the darn things and uh, and you use it now. The ergonomics are a little different because the sh- you change the sh- the shutter speed changes a lot. Like the Olympus OM one, it's on the bar the the lens uh, mount instead of on top by the shutter uh, the shutter button and the film advance. So the ergonomics, if you're an Olympus fan and you're looking to you know dip your toe into Nikon, this is uh, you won't be too out of place with this. Now, the camera accepts any Nikon, Nikkor lens that has the little meter prong, a.k.a. the rabbit ears. The claw. The claw, the rabbit ears, the meter prong, or whatever the official designation it is. And pre-automatic index uh, Nikkor glass is actually still very reasonable. It is high-quality glass. I cannot swear it in, by it enough. And... Um, 
And I've used, and the the camera itself um, comes with a vertical copal shutter, so it's great for stupid cold weather. I've taken this camera out when it's like minus twenty five, and it just keeps going. The one Achilles heel with this ca- two Achilles heels. Uh, one, it takes the dreaded Mercury six twenty five battery, which means you've got to either go zinc air, get it converted to one and a half volts. Or use an MR9 battery adapter. The other Achilles heel is the meter itself. The way it was constructed, over time, if it oxidizes, you get jumpy meter. Yep. Which is sort of sad and a bit of a pain in the butt. But the worst case scenario, you've got light meter apps on smartphones. Or you can take a handheld meter with you and you're good to go. Or just use Sunny 16. Yeah. And that's if you're really stuck. On a day like today, Sunny 16 just rocks. So what do you expect to get for one of these? Um, they're cheap. Like, I mean, if you're looking to get into Nikon but don't want to spend the money, a Nikromat FTN is your gateway, and you, they can be had for a song. Oh, yeah. And as far as usability, they're, they're a great camera. Like, I've used them as sort of like my no tears, no regrets travel camera because if I lose it, oh, well, I'll get another one and just pair it up with a Nikkor H50 F2 lens. They're not that heavy. That's right. Plus, the, uh, the uh, H50F2 is a fantastic lens, a real sleeper. Oh, it is. And you can get those for under $100 these days still. Like around 70 75 yeah. Canadian at a camera show or through one of our uh, favorite vendors, uh, Burlington Camera, if you're in the greater Toronto, greater Toronto area. Uh, the Nikkor S514 is a beautiful lens. I love it for shooting people because uh, when, uh, when you go wide open, it just looks pretty. Mm. But that's just what I had on have on this camera. Um, other than that, the only other, no other caveats. Uh, it was replaced in 1975 with the Nikromat FT2, which it gained a hot shoe, and it switched to silver oxide batteries. Right. That will cost you a little bit more. Yep. Yeah, about 20, 30 bucks, maybe 40 on the outside. Yeah. And then there was the auto exposure version of the EL, which I didn't bring with me today, and that's almost... Uh, category on its own. Absolutely. Which I guess there'll probably be a future CCR episode somewhere on auto exposure cameras from the 70s. Probably. So anywho, that's my two cents for this topic. Fantastic. Um, moving away from cars uh, um, into a rangefinder, we have a camera that hasn't been featured in our show at all, and uh, to bring that is James. And there's a reason why it's not been featured, because it's a K-car camera. <laughs> it's the Yashica Minister 3. Um, the Yashica Minister 3 is um, uh, a rangefinder, uh, as Alex mentioned. It, um, uh, you know, it's part of the family of a really good line of rangefinder cameras that were offered by Yashica. Uh, this one came out in the early uh, 60s. It's pretty much about as basic as you can get for a metered uh, camera uh, of that era. Um, uh, you know, it's it's basic. Uh, it's got a selenium meter uh, on it. Um, it's got a uh, 45 millimeter 2.8 lens, so half decent uh, lens on it. Uh, shutter speeds um, go from uh, one second uh, to one five hundredth, uh, and of course, there's a bulb setting as well. Um, and uh, one of the other things about this camera, in terms of what I don't like about it, is the ASA only goes from 10 to 400. Um, if you wanted to shoot a higher speed film and still use the meter on this camera, you could actually put a 55 millimeter uh, neutral density filter 
on the lens because the uh, the selenium meter is one of those round ones that uh, surrounds the uh, um, uh, inner barrel uh, of the lens. Um, of course, then you'd have to uh, kind of you know finagle a little bit, do some calculations with your filter factor and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, uh, you're still going to be uh, uh, darkening your image anyway uh, in the center. So you'd have to try and find one of those filters that has a uh, a clear. Uh, center. I don't know if they make them anymore. I forget what they're called. I know they had them like back in the 80s um, and they were like in that specialty category of effects type of, uh, of filters. Um, uh, in terms of the camera itself, the metering is uncoupled, so uh, it doesn't really, uh, um, everything is adjusted manually. Uh, the way it works, it's very similar to the uh, 35 SP in the, in the way that you do the metering. Um, there is a, uh, a meter on top, so uh, um, you know it's not in the viewfinder like the 35 SP would be. Um, there's a dial on the top uh, and um, th- there's a match needle uh, that um, lines up with a particular uh, uh, EV value and it goes from EV2 to EV18 and essentially what you do is once you have that EV reading uh, with the top dial you just turn the front ring of the uh, camera of the lens and uh, uh, you turn you dial in your uh, metered EV and then it moves the uh, shutter speed accordingly um, with you so uh, I guess it's uh, not coupled but coordinated um, with the aperture and uh, and shutter speed um, all in all not a bad camera I mean it's a camera that's going to be uh, less than a hundred dollars Canadian probably in the 50 to 60 or 50 to 75 dollar range um, you know what, if you're exploring rangefinders, you've never shot a rangefinder before, you don't want to sink in a ton of cash, uh, hey, it's a great starting point. Um, uh, the rangefinder patch on them uh, is not the best. Um, mine, you know, I mean, while well, we're looking at a 60-year-old camera now, um, you know, it's a little bit soft, but, you know, it, it gets the job done. The lens is half decent. It's reasonably sharp. Uh, for my personal taste, if I was going to get a camera of this, of this era, and sticking like in the rangefinder uh, uh, genre, I would be looking at a Canon, a Canonette, like Ooh. a QL17, something like that, um, or a trusty uh, 35SP. Just a quick question, and I don't remember if you said it earlier or not. Is it a fixed lens or is it interchangeable? Uh, it's a fixed lens. Okay. Yeah. So a Canonette would be a good comparison to a, it then? Yeah, a Canonette would be a good comparison. Um, or yeah. a Minolta Hymatic. Hymatic, yeah. Yep. A Hymatic, so like a Hymatic 5. Oh, I, don't, I think Hymatic 5 is not metered though. So, uh, yeah, 7. Yeah, Hymatic 7 would be a, a very close comparison. And in that kind of ballpark, a Hymatic, you're probably going to be looking probably in the 150 to 200 range, I would yeah, think. Yeah, they've gone up in price. Yeah, so... Um, Even Canonettes have. Canonettes yeah. are like $200, $300 now. Yeah, yeah so it's a good option if you're just exploring rangefinders. And you know what? Rangefinders are not for everyone. Um, you know, me per- I've always had a love-hate relationship with rangefinders. I'm in the hate phase right now. So oh, okay. I've dumped my M6. <laughs> I've dumped my... Uh, um, uh, R2A. Oh, my R2A. Uh, that one didn't last long. No, I know. It lasted like a summer. I took it on vacation and said, <laughs> I don't really like rangefinders. What am I doing? Um, and I'm, I'm in the process of trying to dump my uh, my Leica M240. But uh, I am keeping my uh, my Yashica YF. Oh, of course. Yeah, that, that's a great that little camera. Is, uh, that is one hell of a rangefinder. So that's not going anywhere. But uh, yeah, anyway, look, it's a great camera um, uh, for the money. And certainly, you know, if you see one on the shelf and you're interested, go for it. Yeah. 
Oh, and uh, and to wrap it up, um, I have a camera that, um, well, it's a Pentax. Everyone knows Pentax K1000. Everyone used them in high school. It's the working man's camera. Isn't that the Leica R8? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Gutterman. Oh, Gutterman. (laughs) So, um, to really understand um, the ME um, line of cameras, you need to look at Olympus, and specifically the OM-1. The OM-1 was a game-changing camera in the sense that it produced the first really compact SLR camera. Exactly. It was a real shot across the bow for just about everybody in the camera business in the early 70s. Exactly. And then the OM-2 just jacked that up even more, and it's even more of a groundbreaking camera. Mm. And as such, so in the end, uh, companies like uh, Minolta, Canon, Nikon, they all had to come up with their own replies. And this, the ME is Pentax, in the case of the ME Super, is Pentax's reply to the OM2. Absolutely. And um, this camera gets the job done. That's about all it does. It's a little more interesting than the original ME in the fact that the ME Super gave you back a manual mode. But um, for the most part, I run mine on automatic. Um, mostly um, aperture priority mode because I use the uh, Pentax M lenses, which it, which are the um, matched matched lens um, for the line. They were, again, designed to be smaller scale, and I just prefer the look of them over the um, regular Pentax and Pentax A, um, A1s because they just fit it. It's small, it's tiny, you can take it anywhere, they're dirt cheap on the used market. Um, what's really nice is that you can turn these off with a switch. <laughs> That's a good thing because a couple of cameras out there in the 70s, there was open aperture metering and uh, like Pentax had it with the KM, um, yep. the K1000, and of course the predecessors in the Spotmatic F. Don't know about the ES and ES2. Those are two. Ca- Actually, if you really want to go deep, you'd probably look into the history of the ES and ES2, and then later the K2, which are sort of predecessors to the ME Super. Absolutely, um, but no, um, it's it is really tiny, like tinier than what it's I'd. It's a normally- nice looking camera, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, it's tinier than what I'd normally go for in an SLR. Um, now you can add a motor drive to this to sort of give it that extra, extra meaty grip on it. But if I want a small camera just to throw in a, a bag, even my regular everyday messenger bag that I carry to and from work, the ME Super is that camera. Yeah, it's a great glove box camera too. Yep. You know? Um, viewfinders, uh, not bad. Um, I really like the fact that, um, the uh, meter display is, um, LEDs. It's not a needle. Um, they're bright green, so very easy to see, even in dark conditions. Um, yeah, just super easy to use, super easy to load. Um, What's the shutter speed range on it? It can go up to one two thousandths of a second, which is not good. bad. Not bad That's at all. actually really good for uh, basically a, what I could yep. call a prosumer camera from the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, Must be electronic shutter then, I guess, eh? Yeah. It is an electronic Copal shutter. Yep. Um, you do need batteries to run it. There is a um, 1 125th override um, manual um, 
mechanical shutter release. So if all else fails, you can still run this um, and just go Sunny 16 with um, 100 speed film and you're good to go. Um, but again, I mostly run it full automatic. It just it just works. Um, it doesn't take up much space, so I can usually have it as a second SLR along with a um, medium format camera or a larger um, 35 millimeter kit. So yeah, it's uh, it's just really nice, really basic, really simple. Yeah. Very cool. Right yeah. On. All right. Um, before we continue, um, last month, um, Freestyle and um, Stephen Dowling from Cosmophoto alerted us to uh, something new being put into uh, certain airports, um, mostly in the United States and around the world, and that is new baggage scanners for your um, carry-on luggage. Now, traditionally, they were regular x-ray scanners. They didn't really do much to help see what was inside the bag, and they took a long time. Um, so they're starting to put in CT scanners into a series of airports. Um, if you check our notes, I'll have a list of, we'll have the list of the airports um, that they are currently, currently in, them. installed in. Um, the trouble is, is that you could get away with sending your film through an x-ray scanner as long as it was under ASA 800. And I've, I've sent film through um, them a couple times and have had no problem. The new CT scanners will cook any undeveloped film. One pass, done. Bye-bye. Yeah, so um, having not flown for the past few years, and again, I've flown, the last time I flew to New York, that wasn't a problem. Going yep. there, coming back. I think going forward, you're going to have to do some advanced planning. A, you're either going to have to request a hand check, which... Most airports, they'll be accommodating. I've heard Heathrow, they can be utter miseries about it. And they're sort of notorious for it. I can't speak for other airports. You may have to buy your film locally. And you may have to, like if you're traveling in the U.S., it's almost to a point, maybe you send it off to get it processed while you're in the U.S. and mm. they send the negs back to you. It's going to be a righteous pain in the ass. But as long as, uh, you know threats real than perceived are out there and this is the government's response to them absolutely we're stuck with it uh there are workarounds maybe maybe it's also a case you if you're part of an analog a larger analog photography community out there in the world maybe uh you know you make enough friends maybe you can get access to a developing tank and you get your stuff done absolutely because yeah. once your film is developed you're fine what will be interesting is um, when you order film and they start implementing this for cargo. Yeah, that's another interesting one because if uh, who knows what it's going to be with cargo, uh, and it's not even just consumer like consumer and pro photographic film. You're talking motion picture stock. You're talking other sensitive materials that will be affected by CT scans. I think there are going to be some industries that are going to be quite righteously pissed off about it. Well, I imagine there's going to be some, I would think, if this ever makes it into the cargo sort of space or logistics space, yeah. there's going to have to be some kind of waiver or special materials handling for you know, photosensitive materials or 
radiation sensitive materials too like beyond that i know a lot of canadians that send their stuff down to the u.s to get developed right so even beyond like ordering your your uh your film sending it off to get developed like it might yeah like more challenging um, ordering film being sent on boats yeah yeah yeah. the last time i sent um stuff down to uh, the darkroom in california to get processed when it came back to me it had cbsa tape on it saying we opened it and i'm thinking yeah that kind of makes sense you got large coils from a company called the dark room <laughs> right <laughs> well it, it's sort of like and again the problem is uh, we as film photographers we're a niche community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in the grand scheme of things the powers that be regardless of what country you live in they're going to say well that's nice put your stuff through the ct scanner like everyone else mm-hmm. yeah um, I was last time say, like, the, the other option, you know, in, in addition to like uh, ordering it when you get down to wherever you're going or whenever you, if you don't want to bring it on the airport, um, you could get one of those like flat rate boxes and, and, and ship your film down and kind of meet you there. And then when you've shot it all, ship it back home and, and have it meet you back home it, until they implement these things yeah, in absolutely. the spaces. Um, I, I don't know. If and I gonna... think it would mostly be for cargo, anything going by airport airplane anything going by truck is probably safe yeah with the, yeah. yeah yeah they're only worried about planes and the reality is and again i'm yeah, i i am I, I study political science and history in university i know some people in the national security space and they themselves say look a lot of this is just theater if somebody really wants to take a plane down they don't even need to board the damn thing no they don't yeah they could be at the end of the runway oh sure i mean you can buy a friggin' rocket launcher at any surplus store in the good old us and a so. <laughs> well let's not give them ideas um, no no uh, no but again i'm i'm thinking my next trip to say new york city i might be taking the train mm, good idea i'm and very glad that if amtrak reintroduces uh, tr- uh, a service to chicago i will be leveraging that too absolutely i'm well, so glad that i actually drove to chicago because o'hare is one of those airports <laughs> oh O'Hare yeah, is that O'Hare. airport well but, i've uh, nicknamed it o'hell yeah. Yeah, that's another nice reason why I so for us here drove. living so close to the border is if we want to fly to the states, we just drive to Buffalo yeah, or exactly. Detroit, and you know. Although yeah. you're getting your stuff X-rayed at those airports before you get on the plane anyway, but uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, when I flew to uh, Regina, um, I got my bag secondary both times because I had the Minolta Maxim Nine in it. And they were most curious because there was this cavity inside of it. Well, it's funny. uh, Getting back to security, I remember once I was uh, flying to New York City. This is back in 2013. My brother had me bring a Moskva down to him because there was a guy in Queens who worked on Soviet cameras. Oh, jeez. So here I am at Toronto Island Billy Bishop Airport. And uh, for whatever reason, it was like I needed the secondary. Expe- and it, it, something was gassing off the Moskva because I was running with a Leica M42 and pretty much, you know, uh, a Canon 51.4 lens. I think a Voilander 35 2.8 and the collapsible LMR 90. But it was like the Moskva was gassing off something. Either that or the lenses In were In Russia, the camera have gas too. <laughs> yeah, gas of another sort. So, of course, they brought it here. They had this lovely little machine with a little sponge on the end, and they were swiping it down. Oh, yeah. looking, I mean, what the heck is this? And I was like, oh, it's mostly harmless. Oh, it's a camera. Oh, okay. Popped it, popped it back in my camera bag. I made it all the way down to the departure lounge, had an espresso, and just waited for my flight. But... Yeah, absolutely. But again, the best thing you can do whenever you're at an airport is to be polite, yeah. be professional, um, 
ask, answer their questions. Ask nicely. Yeah. Ask nicely. Um, when I went to Europe, I flew with a whole pile of film, a lot of older films that I really didn't want to risk getting exposed to x-rays. And both at Pearson and at Schiphol, they were more than happy to do the hand check. So just be informed, be educated, know the risks, and do your best to mitigate them. Yeah, and I would also recommend research your lo the local labs at your destination. They do exist. Absolutely. If, especially if you're in a major urban center, like, say, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, they're going to have some, or, you know, some secondary cities, they'll have community dark rooms. Absolutely. I would even just look at, okay, can I just take a one-day membership? Like, they, the, sec the penultimate day before you leave, you're just doing a massive developing session. Just uh, That's right. And if you are in the Toronto area traveling here and don't want to risk it, by all means, get in touch with us. We all have the capabilities to have film processed. Heck, I'll do it for you. Free. Yep. Yeah, and no also we can recommend labs for you. There's a couple of decent ones downtown that you can mm -hmm. go to, and their turnaround isn't too, too bad. No, no, not at all. Just as a note on that, when I um, flew down to New York a couple months ago, um, I was bringing a bunch of film with me, and I didn't need to bring any fast film, but I threw a roll of, uh, of Delta 3200 in there so that when I asked them to hand check, and they're like, oh, you only need to do it for fast film, I'm like... Yeah, I've got this roll of thirty two hundred in here, so we got to get there. We go hand checked, and, and and they were fine. And again, as long as you're polite and pleasant about it, and not like aggressive right. or like confrontational about it, you know, there really shouldn't be a problem. I'm impressed that they knew we only do fast film. Yeah, yeah seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, I guess um, they were in their forties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, at the Regina Airport, there was a sign saying yeah, any film. There was a sign, at, was a sign uh, yeah. at the Regina Airport, which is tiny. Well, again, film photography is in resurgence, so chances are you may wind up with someone on the line who might be dabbling in it. You That's right. Know. Very and true. Yeah, I had um, great chats with um, both CBSA agents at Pearson and at Regina about um, about film and film photography. So, you can still get film for those things. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. That's John Meadows' line. Absolutely. Now, um, as you've probably heard, we have a new voice on uh, today's episode, and um, Brian will be joining us for the last three episodes of the season. And um, again, Brian is relatively new to film. He's uh, just gotten back to it, but photography is not something he's new with. So, Brian, introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, so, uh, yeah, thank, thank you guys for having me up here for this. So, I've, um, I've been a professional photographer for 13 years, actually. Um, photographing uh, weddings and portraits um, here in the Niagara region uh, for for all of those 13 years full-time as a, as a pro photographer and um, it's interesting because for my entire career as a photographer um, I've always actually been so focused on the business side of being a photographer and in fact that's what I teach photographers now is the business side of photography and so something um, that gets missed so many times Oh, and it's it's one of those things and I, I say this all the time when I speak when I teach when I'm talking with any photographer I say you can be the best photographer in the world but unless you know how to run a business you're never sunk. you'll never be able to to make it as if you want to make a living from photography um, and so that's what you know that's what we teach on our podcast and, and so on and so forth um, but the interesting thing was that for my entire career I've always photographed almost exclusively for clients so I've never really photographed for myself. 
uh, which is like interesting because I obviously care about the craft and the art of photography, but it's it's always been for clients. And so uh, you know, it was it was actually probably about a year ago that I um, the turning point was I I watched a, a Masters of Photography. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Uh, I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name who's who's running it. You, you know what I'm talking about, James? Uh, yes, I'm trying to remember the name. But so so Joel Merowitz is on. Uh, McCurry has has one. Yep. And um, um, what's the third one? I can't think of his name did, right now. Is Annie Leibovitz on there too? No, no that's, that's, that's master master class. Master class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen that one too. Yeah, that's pretty good too. Very good. Yeah. yeah. So this one is like it's Masters of Dot Photography yeah. is the URL. So I watched um, one the the Joel Merowitz class and uh, just watching it, I was just like. For the, it was my the first time in my career that I was just like, hang on a second. There's this whole other thing that I've never even thought about. I've never anything. And if anyone knows Joel and, and you know has has seen him speak, like he is incredibly inspirational and very profound in the way that he elaborates on topics. And it just kind of it it gave me this enough of like a bit of a tickle, like that little like feeling you get in the back of your neck. And I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this thing, you know, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, uh, that's where I am today. So yeah, so I've been photographing now uh, on film for just just over a year now. Hey, good for yeah. you. That that's great. Like I always like you know. Uh, certainly, I feel you. Uh, you know, I also spent time as a professional photographer as well. And um, for me, it got to the point where I wasn't shooting for myself anymore, mm-hmm. and I started to dislike photography because photography became another job. Yeah, you know. So I I, I left professional photography probably about four or five years ago now and um you know getting back to i guess the joy of photography i i've really found it in film photography yeah. um certainly you know i do still enjoy shooting digitally it's faster it's efficient whatever um it's just as good right. um but it where it lacks for me personally is the um sort of experiential kind of reward that you get out of film photography. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There is there is a certain magic of pulling those negatives out of the oh, tank yeah. and going like, yeah, this it, is exactly just, what I want. It's part of the process. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's you the know. thrill. Yeah, and it's like, you know, the thing about film photography is the... For me, what, what I love about it versus digital is... Um, I have I feel like I have greater control over all the different stages in the creative process. Mm. I have to select film, I have to select how I'm going to shoot it, if I'm going to push, if I'm going to pull, if I'm going to under overexpose, etc. What camera to put it what in? Camera, what chemicals I'm going to use, and then there's a whole other aspect that you don't find in digital, at least not to the same degree is darkroom printing. Yeah. And darkroom printing um, there is nothing more magical and Brian's going to see it later today. <laughs> yep. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, watching your image appear on a piece of paper. That's uh, when I was like 15 years old, when I developed my first darkroom print in high school. Uh, that's when I fell in love right. with photography. Same here. You know, it's, it's, oh, hands the, down. The interesting thing, you know, I, I, I really don't, I don't want to put a, a negative tone on on being a professional photographer because for me for 13 years and now I teach professional photographers like it, it's it's unbelievably rewarding and very very fulfilling 
to be able to make a living doing something that you love. And that's, that's you know, I, I tell the story all the time when I teach, you know, like my wife and I have been able to own our home and own our vehicles and vacation when we want and live the lifestyle that we want. She's a stay-at-home mom with her three kids for the last six years, all because of the money that I made from yeah. photography. And, and I built my business to a point where I was literally shooting exactly what I wanted to shoot, exactly how I wanted to shoot, and people paid me really good money to do that. Yeah. That was super cool. But what was missing for me was like that, um, the personal, um, the, the, the tactile, being part of the process. And I think yeah. that's what I've discovered in film is like being a part of, like you were saying, James, like you put the role of film in the camera. You take a picture and you advance it with your fingers. Yeah. And like, you, I, I develop everything at home now. And like, you know, that's just being a part of that whole process. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like it's more difficult than digital. Digital is very easy because yes. you take a picture, you it is more it, difficult. you adjust it. It definitely is. So more, when I get a good yeah. picture on film, I'm like, yeah, I did it. Like I did it, and like that's even more rewarding yeah. because of that. So it's yeah. just it's been been super cool for to have yeah. that. And before you send all the emails in, let me clarify what I mean by <laughs> clarify by what I mean by more difficult. What I mean by more difficult, I guess, is it's not necessarily harder per se. It's a little bit more complex than yeah. than digital photography and you require a little bit more trust in your own ability because you don't see the end product in you know one nanosecond uh, and looking at the back of your camera and I'm not saying digital is is better or worse by any means for me they're both just photography yeah. um, absolutely but you know film is something that has a sort of a bit of magic to it you know and it, you know what's actually interesting is um, th it's almost more difficult in some ways, because it's more easy. Like I'm, I'm thinking of in the example I talked about in this episode, the pen. Right? This is literally this is a point and shoot camera. This yeah. is like you you put it in. It's on auto mode. You literally choose one of four zones, take a picture, and it's going to turn out. Like yeah. the meter is great. Everything is great in it. So you give anyone this camera, and as long as they can tell the difference between three feet and ten feet, they're going to technically have the same ability to make a picture that I oh, have yeah. with that. Yeah. And so it almost makes you know the framing the composition the the you know the decisive moment being able to get the right uh, image like it mm. makes the actual skill of making the image more obvious less than like the technical side of it which yes. is which is interesting too. yeah absolutely and you can go completely on to the other end of the spectrum one of the cameras that i was thinking about talking about was the uh, canon eos 650 that is the camera i go to when i just want to take pictures and don't want to use a digital camera i have an autofocus lens auto exposure i load the film and just go i hear you and that's in and mine for me it's the f6 yeah it's, it just works all the time mm -hmm. and yeah you know what and uh you know all you film purists can you know turn over in your graves if you want but you know it's like shooting a digital camera and oh absolutely it's convenient it's accurate and it's consistent that's right and you know i, I you know it's funny like you know, i always find in film photography there seems to be sort of two camps there's people that like are just love the gear like yep. they want to acquire and i i sometimes fall into that category i'm not gonna lie <laughs> it's fun to acquire gear we all do <laughs> totally know? who are you kidding yeah but we enable, you know, but for me, uh, like, I, I think there's a camp that like, they just want to shoot the camera. They love the, they love that aspect of it. And then there's the other camp that are photographers, like pure and simple photographers. They buy gear because it helps them produce an image. Uh, and then they're, you know, compared to guys that want to collect gear because 
it's sentimental, it's nostalgic, it's cool, it's fun. They might have an engineering kind of mindset, a designer's kind of mindset. They love that sort of thing. Hey, and that's totally cool. Um, but you know what? If you're if you are a photography minded photographer, get the camera that works for for you. Absolutely. You know, like, don't worry about you know acquiring every single format or you know whatever. And even around the table, like you know, Bill is primarily a thirty five millimeter shooter. Yeah, thirty five mil and one twenty. Note, I said one twenty. One twenty mil. Well, then you should say one thirty five and one twenty. Oh, yeah, such a purist. <laughs> yeah, oh, well. Well, uh, man, great episode. Um, we will be back later this month. Um, until then, um, my name's Alex Loke, saying that even if you drive a K car, you can still get laid in the back of it. Oh, Jesus. This is James Lee. Um, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's easy. Oh, damn. And how ca- it's Bill Smith. How the hell can I follow up after Alex and James? Really? Really? You stole the wind from me. And my name is Brian Capricci. And if you're not having fun, why are you doing it? There we go. There we go. <laughs> this is John Meadows from behind the editing console. Unlike a K car, I'll be back soon. But like a K car, no one ever loves me for my body. <laughs>